This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Kids, you are dismissed. Today's scripture reading is from John 3, verses 1 through 21. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe... How will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the, name, in the one of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift it is to gather with your people, in your name, by your power. God, I pray that as we think about what it means to to dive into a phrase that we may have heard and maybe even know what it means to be born again. God, I pray that you would ever be giving us this sense of new birth. God, I pray that what it means, I pray that if there are things within us that need to be redone, reworked, or reborn, that you will do it through your word. God, we need you more than ourselves. We need your birthright more than our own. So God, will you do that in us now through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. Thank you. Um, 
You know, before, before I start, there's something that just really occurred to me that even as we were talking about church membership earlier, um, I, I really, y'all, we, there's a lot that goes in to the worship and the, and the folks that help lead us in corporate worship, and they do an amazing job and an incredible job, uh, the way that they lead us in. And uh, sometimes there are very thankless roles that are played there. There are roles that, that happen uh, that you don't actually see. As a matter of fact, there are some roles that you don't see until something goes wrong. Then we know about them. And so for whatever reason, I just want to take a quick moment just to thank one person in particular that so often behind the scenes, you have no idea how much work they put in. And, and they honestly, we would not function the way we do as a church if they weren't faithful the way that they are. So Philip Scheidt, brother, I just want to tell you, we love you. We're so thankful. This, this, this man, yeah, this man is here before everybody. It's often gone, I mean, leaves after everybody is gone. Make sure so many things run smoothly. His attention to detail is just unparalleled to the point where, like, we need him to, like, get us in order sometimes. Uh, so, Phil, we thank you, and I'm just thankful for you. Um, all right, listen, there's no segue out of that. I just, want you, I just want to be able to recognize that we've got some folks that love Jesus and love us. Um, one thing I learned about my time in the military and traveling and living in so many different places, uh, being in, in everywhere from uh, uh, Texas to Mississippi to St. Louis to Alaska to Iraq, Kuwait to Hawaii, uh, I've noticed But one of the fun things I love to do was to try to figure out where people were from based on the accent and based on the phrases and the words that they would use. And you can do it. I mean, there are certain phrases, right? Unless somebody pays close attention to their regional diction, they won't, you won't, you'll always be able to tell kind of where they're from. You can usually see a pattern or get a feel for a region that they may be from. You can tell a lot about a person and where a person is from by observing the words and the phrases that they use. For example, uh, I'm from Detroit. And so when you're from Detroit, Instead of just saying, what is the state of current events in your world? You say, what up, though? Only a few of y'all know this. This is what happens. When some, if you're from Detroit and you say that, everybody just realizes, oh, they're from Detroit because they greeted me in that way, right? Uh, if you were from Hawaii, and I learned this when I moved there. In Hawaii, there are a couple of phrases that are very unique to Hawaiians. They don't just say, how are you doing? They don't just say, what's up? They say, how's it? That's it. Just how's it? And it's weird because the first time for me going there, I'm like waiting for them to finish the sentence. How's it? I remember once I was going to go play basketball with a guy, Hawaiian dude that I worked with. And he was, I, I called him on the phone like, hey, I'm getting ready to meet you at the gym. And, and so we can play some basketball. He's like, shoots. I was like, yeah, that's right. We're going to shoot basketball when we get there. He's like, all right, shoots. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. When we get together, we're going to shoot a basketball. And really, that was just a colloquial phrase for That's cool. We're, we're, we're good. I'll see you then. Shoots. Right? Somebody says that, you're like, you must be from Hawaii. There's a guy on ESPN every night when he starts, he says, how's it? And he does that as an homage to Hawaii, where he's from. Uh, so there are phrases that you could just tell. You could learn a lot about somebody just by the words they use. Uh, I actually found several words that can give away what regions of the country we may be from. Now, yes, there's exceptions. Please don't try to prove people wrong just by saying, I don't say it that way. That's great. But you're not a cross-section of everybody. Um, okay, so here's the question. What do you call insects that glow at night? I just heard two. I heard it, yes. Fireflies and lightning bugs. That's what I heard, right? Depending on where you're from, you're going to use a different word. If you're from west of the Rockies, likely you say fireflies. 
If you're from east of the Rockies, likely you say lightning bugs. There's exceptions, but by and large, that's what they've This is actually from a group of psychologists that have researched this, so it's really interesting. What do you refer, how do you refer to uh, a sale of household items outside? I heard them. That's right. Yard sale and garage sale. Now, that is another that you can tell, right? If you are from the southeast or the east coast, likely you say yard sale. If you're from the plain states in the Midwest, you say garage sale. If you're from, here's the weird thing. If you're from eastern Wisconsin, you say rummage sale. And, if, and here's even weirder. And if you're from western Massachusetts or Connecticut, you call it a tag sale. See, some of y'all know this. I'm, I'm out of the loop. How do you address a group of people? Ah, let he that has ear, right? <laughs> Listen, if you're from the south, southeast, you're going to say y'all. Almost everybody else, you guys. <laughs> a few, now, if you're from Pittsburgh, they say yins. Yins. And if you're from New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania, certain parts, you'll say yous. Let me get a quick aside. Like, y'all, his, his was interesting. Yes, by and large, there's a region that affects that. But here's one thing that you got to know. And this is, just, this is just me being a black man. If you're black, I don't care where you're from, you grew up saying y'all. Because the majority of folks who are black out up north originally are from the south. So they all brought it with them. So it's weird. I've always found that when I moved here uh, within, this is just kind of an aside. When I moved down south, people were like, usually uh, people who were not of color would say, uh, oh, man, when you get down there, you're going to get used to saying y'all, and you better get ready to eat some grits. And I'm like, that's what we brought up here. Like, <laughs> you just need to understand that. Like, it's not new to us. It's true to us. But, okay. How about this? How do you refer to carbonated beverages? Man, I heard pop. I heard soda. Now listen, if you're from the Midwest, you're going to say pop. By and large, you're going to say pop. I grew up, it was pop. From the West Coast, you're calling it soda. If you're from the Southeast, you're calling it Coke. I thought that was the weirdest thing. I'm going to a restaurant, they're like, hey, what do you want? What kind of, what kind of Coke do you want? A Sprite? What? <laughs> Bloomy, man. And then parts of Georgia, kind of Southeast Georgia, this I had never heard of, they call it Coca-Cola. What is that? Uh, how about this? Where do you, what, what, what do you call the, the receptacle in which you throw your trash? Did I hear anything else? Trash can? Garbage can. Those are the two primary. Pacific Northwest, all call it garbage can. Uh, everybody else pretty much calls it a trash can. What large vehicle do we use to haul freight in? That right there is very unique. <laughs> To Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia. That's it. <laughs> Nobody else calls it an 18-wheeler <laughs> unless you're Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia. Almost all of the U U.S. you call it a semi or a semi-truck. And on the East Coast and Northeast, they call it a tractor trailer. How about this? What do you drink from in public places? Bubbler. That's the weirdest thing in my I just don't even understand that. Bubbler. I don't even know how I feel if there's bubbly stuff coming out of my fountain. That blew me away. Bubbler, y'all. Bubbler, small portion of New England and Wisconsin. That's it. And it just makes its way around. That's the primary regions where they call it bubbler. West Pacific Northwest, they call it a drinking fountain. South East Coast, water fountain. How about this? Athletic footwear. Tennis shoes, sneakers. Is there a third? Gym shoes. That's what it should be called. No. 
being from the Midwest, it's common to call it uh, gym shoes, uh, but almost everybody calls it tennis shoes, except for the Northeast, where they call it sneakers. I guess intuitively, it makes the most sense, right? You can be quiet and sneak and, and, and sneak. But why are you so sneaky? Like, where are you trying to go? I, 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 don't, I don't trust that. <laughs> Bottom line is this. Where you are from affects the words and phrases you use. Further, there are developmental psychologists that have also shown that where you're born influences, at least in part, your mannerisms and the person you become. This is shown even if you go back throughout history. There was a fifth century Greek historian uh, who, who actually put it this way. It's interesting. His name was uh, Thucydides, and Thucydides actually started uh, pointing out different mannerisms he saw amongst different areas of Greece. And so what you would notice is he, he looked at and he noticed that the Spartans, who were very stoic, they often were really good at self-control and, and really good at, at stoicism. Uh, and, 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 and yet the Athens, the Athenians, they were much more indulgent, much more free-thinking. And so he was easily able to say, like, if you happened to be somebody who was more indulgent, you were likely from Athens. If you were somebody that was more composed, you were probably a Spartan. Today, there are unique behaviors and characteristics that seem to be rooted in certain cultures. Again, there's exceptions across the board. But you can see the correlations pretty clearly, and these psychologists have done so. They've, they've noticed, I actually read a whole medical journal, the psychological journal, on uh, these different regions and what they're uh, uh, likely to do. They talked about the, the, the common gesticulation of Italians, right? That if you go, I've been to Italy, when you go, you will see a lot of people that are talking with their hands. As a matter of fact, I saw one conversation where the guy forgot what he forgot the words he wanted to say, so he just kept moving his hands. Had nothing, no words coming out, but just kept working his hands. It was a common way of communicating. It was a, something that was kind of learned behavior. Uh, they also showed that Dutch children are much more easygoing and less fussy than kids as they observed around the world. They also noticed that, uh, as they were evaluating this, that folks who were from Russia tend to smile less than other folks. Please don't fill in the blank and figure out why. We're not doing that. But these are just things that are observable. If there are certain behaviors and mannerisms that you have, it might be, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it might be rooted in where you were born, where you were raised. Now, this is true even when you consider broad cultural values like individualism versus collectivism. In other words, are you more prone to think about yourself or are you more prone to think about others? That actually can, can very much be impacted by where you're born, by what region, by what country in which you were born. Studies have shown that folks from the U.S. or the Netherlands are typically people who are driven by pursuits that benefit themselves, seeking personal recognition and boosting their own social or financial status. However, collectivist societies like South Korea or Chile place high values on the well-being of the larger group, typically their family, but also their workplace or their country. Where you are born and where you're raised has an impact on how you see and who you become. Our text today shows this very principle. What we're going to see, and I hope you see this in your text, what we see here and what I believe Jesus is showing us is your birthplace matters. Where you are born and the values that have been ingrained in you has affected how you see and affected who you are. And Jesus said that while some of that is good, like it's not to say everything that makes up who you are is just horrible and bad, but while some of that is, is good, it can't be good enough. And the only way to change that 
is to be born again. That is to say, to be born from above. And we'll talk about why that distinction matters. So when you consider where we are, here we are in John chapter 3. We've been in this series on John, and we've been really looking at what it means to walk with Jesus. John is a very unique gospel writer, and you're going to see this story specifically. It's very different from some of the stories you'll read in the other three gospels. Here we are, uh, John chapter 3, and he introduces us to this man named Nicodemus. See in verse 1, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now that right there is already interesting. Why? Because Nicodemus is not mentioned in any other gospel, only this one. His story, the, the man Nicodemus, is only mentioned here. And there are, it's a curious question, right? Why is, he, why is his story only mentioned here in John? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't seem to mention him. And there's a lot of theories as to, as to why he may not have been mentioned elsewhere. But one of them, it, it appears, and my view is, and I think this is borne out, we'll see in Scripture, is that later this man, Nicodemus, became a believer. And it's very likely that the three gospel authors, the other three gospel authors, were trying to protect his identity because he, as a Jewish leader, would have actually stood to pay a pretty high cost for being a believer. And yet John includes him. Now, why would he need protection? Well, Scripture tells us, what was his role? He was a Pharisee. Now, you had two, we've talked about this before, but within the Jewish community, you had two major, major sects, if you will. You had major groups of theological thought and some theological diversity, right? They, they all believed the law, but one primary difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee is these Pharisees still believed in the bodily resurrection. Sadducees did not. And that was a big theological talking point. So it was pretty divisive as well. And so here, this man is a, a Jewish leader, right? Someone who has great power, likely has a degree, a, a, a degree of, of wealth and influence and, and status. But not only was he uh, this, this Pharisee, this leader, Scripture says he was a ruler of the Jews. And many translations will point out he was a member of something called the Sanhedrin. This is also a really important thing to understand. Because not only was he a member of this group of Pharisees, but he had very high status. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So if you, if you know anything about kind of the way that some of the socio-political structures were in place in, in that uh, day and time, you had two types of ruling bodies of the Jews, two, basically two types of courts. You had what was known as the, the lesser Sanhedrin, which typically was about 23 rabbis or judges, if you will, these 23 leaders, their job was to sit in all of these major cities throughout the Jewish world. Their job was to sit there as like a lower court to be able to adjudicate issues that would come up amongst Jewish people. So much like our district courts now. There's an issue, we have to take it to court, you go to these various courts, and if you don't like the, the, the verdict, if you don't like the judgment, then you can appeal to higher courts. The highest court in the land was called the Great Sanhedrin. And the Great Sanhedrin is all, almost always what's being referred to in Scripture when they talk about being a member of the Sanhedrin. Because throughout that, the writings of that day, if they were going to make a differentiation, they would differentiate by highlighting the lesser Sanhedrin. If they don't highlight it as a lesser Sanhedrin, they're talking about the, ultimately the Supreme Court of the land. 
There was 71, there were 71 members on the Sanhedrin, of which Nicodemus was one. So when you think about just high up this guy is, he's basically like one of the high-ranking Supreme Court justices of Jerusalem. He is someone who is, who is ultimately, they, they look to him to be a member of the final word. So if he were to become a believer in Jesus, what would happen to this man? He, he had to know. So again, this, this makes a little sense why maybe most of the gospel writers would have been like, yeah, we're, we're going to keep this one out. But John doesn't for a reason. So this is who Nicodemus is. We know that the Sanhedrin, they're already worried about their power. They're worried about their influence. They're worried about their status because there's this Jewish man doing things that Jewish folks shouldn't be doing. And so they're already looking into him, and they're probably collecting information, doing a little recon to figure out how do we gather enough evidence for the inevitable trial that will come for this man, Jesus. So you know that they've got folks, they've got spies, they've got people going out, and Nicodemus is a part of this body. Now, Nicodemus likely is someone, though, who may, maybe, who knows? We don't know for sure. Maybe he was sent to go spy on him, and when he got there, his heart starts to change and goes... I don't really know if this is the kind of guy we should be spying on in this way. I'm, I'm starting to believe that he may indeed be who he's claiming to be. And so, and we're going to look a little bit later, you're going to see some things about Nicodemus that uniquely bear that out. But here, here these, San, these Sanhedrin folks, these guys were the ones who were responsible for collecting data. They're, they're causing riots to, to break out. They're finding trumped up charges to charge Jesus with so that he can ultimately get uh, tried and eventually killed. Well, we know that a few of them started to believe, because look at this next verse. Nicodemus is there, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. This is, the reason why this is so unique is because this is one of the only places in all of the Gospels that you'll find positive kind of, a positive light cast on someone in this group. Typically, when Jesus is talking to Pharisees, he's talking to religious leaders, he's calling them out, right? Which is, that, that should happen. He's calling them out because he can see what they're doing and he sees their heart's intent and he calls them out. This man, something's different about him. Nicodemus is treated differently than the other Pharisees we see in scripture. Something's different. First of all, he refers to Jesus as rabbi. He, he refers to him as as, as a teacher like himself. He basically says, I'm acknowledging that there's some authority you have. None of these other Pharisees would ever do that. Oh, the other thing is the fact that he went to see Jesus at night probably says a lot about him probably being a believer and scared to be seen talking to him. And so he's, he's talking to him and he says something true. He says, we've seen, we've heard the stuff you've been doing. We heard about, maybe we heard about the, the water into wine, that crazy wedding thing that you did. We also just saw you turn over tables, kicking over stuff, getting angry at the ways that people are exploiting in the temple. So, so we saw you do an incredible miracle, and we saw you express, act with some real authority that a lot of people are questioning. But based on what I've seen, and there are many other things that aren't written that we're told he did, based on the things that I've seen, Nicodemus says, I know that you're doing this by the power of God. And there were a few of us who believe that you're doing this by the power of God. None, none of that is false, right? But look at how Jesus responds. For a lot of us, that'd be enough. 
Why? Because, because ultimately, I can't read your heart. You can't read mine. All you can do is base like your view of me off of what I say and off of what I do. But Jesus looks at him and he says, truly I tell you, and in the old King James, verily, verily, I say to you, Anytime that phrase is there, there's this heightened emphasis, right? This pay close attention. This is vital information. He says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you would, you would think that after this man has come to Jesus and said, hey, based on the things that I've seen, there's something special about you. But this is where the whole birth thing happens, right? See, the way that you see is largely predicated upon how you've been raised and what you've been taught and what you think, right? Everything. How you make sense of your world is based off of all of the things collectively that have been drawn upon your tapestry, right? So even the best things in the world, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he's like, yeah, you're seeing some things, but your eyes, your vision is limited by your birthplace, your vision is limited by the way in which you've been born and maybe even the family into which you've been born and the world into which you've been born. It's limited. You see things about me, but your vision keeps you from ever seeing me. That, that's what he's saying. And this is a big thing, right? Because it's really easy. He could have easily. Nicodemus definitely could now say things that are true about Jesus. The people who witnessed him can say, I saw and I witnessed things that Jesus did. That still doesn't mean you really see Jesus. But you can see things about him. You can know things about him. You can quote things about him and never know him. So Jesus calls this out. He says, listen, even the things that you've said, they're true, but unless you're born again, or, or another way to say this is unless you are born from above, you will never see kingdom things. So even your best effort, you're still missing who I really am. See, nothing is worse. I know this because I've been blind most of my life. I've had horrible vision for a very long time. Now, I remember before I knew that I needed glasses, and my daughter, can, she's experienced this as well because, bless God, that's one thing I passed on to her is my bad vision. And so I remember there was this cute video of Paige who it, it had just gotten her glasses for the first time. And I still have it. I, I remember putting it out on Facebook. She's, she didn't know we were looking at her, and I'm videotaping her. And she is putting on her glasses and then taking them off, looking outside, putting them on, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off, put them on. And she just starts like getting so giddy and excited because she can see like vibrant colors for the first time and she can make out contrasting parts of shapes in ways she couldn't, right? There's nothing worse than going through life squinting, not knowing that you can see life perfectly. What Jesus is saying is the best you can do on your best day is just squint at me. On your best day. The best you can do is just squint at the world. And you make your best assumption of what the world is, and you make your best assumption of who you are because you're squinting at yourself. And so what, what Jesus kind of points out here is your vision is skewed. Even the, and this is apart from bad things you might do. The, good, the best parts of you will still make your vision skewed. Unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying this. Your earthly birth gives you earthly vision, gives you earthly thoughts, gives you an earthly heart. Doesn't mean everything's bad, just means it's earthly. 
Your heavenly birth gives you heavenly vision, heavenly thoughts, and a kingdom-minded heart. That's what he's saying. The other thing is when he says, unless you are born again, just as an aside, because this can be lost depending on our translations, the Greek word that's used for, uh, that's translated here again, uh, it, it, it li- it's almost always translated as uh, the, the word above. Most often translated as above, right? Meaning from heaven or from God. We know this because when you look at Matthew and Mark and they describe that issue of the temple, right? When Jesus dies and the veil is torn, it says it was torn from top or above to bottom and they use the same word. James 1.17, every good and perfect thing comes from above, right? So that word really is what it, it's not just being born again because you just, you're going to see uh, Nicodemus doesn't get it either. There's this, this origin of real heart change and where does that come from? Born from above. And obviously Nicodemus responds the way anybody with earthly eyes and earthly ears would respond. And he says, well, how can anyone be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now you can see it and be like, man, he's just being sarcastic. If he knew this was Jesus, Jesus could have ate him up right here. Using this hyperbole. Don't be hyperbolic with Jesus. Like, you don't need that. But, but ultimately, he really is trying his best to make sense of this. He's saying, you, you're using this language, born. We don't, the way I've seen things <laughs> is that whenever somebody's born, it only happens once. Because the only way he knew to understand born was physical. Didn't understand any other way. So he's thinking, how in the world is it possible? Are you telling me I've got to physically be born from my mother yet again? See, this is what happens when all we have is the vision and the understanding with which we were born and with which we were raised. When all you know is what you know, you'll never be able to understand new stuff. You'll never understand even God's things. And, and, and it's not our fault, right? All I have is who I am and what I've learned. I can't bring anything else with me. So if you have knowledge or experiences outside of my purview, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to make sense of it. So you know what I do? I try to force this new knowledge into my pre-existing ways of thinking. I try to force it in, right? So the stuff that'll fit, I hold on to. The stuff that doesn't, I just cast it to the side. This is the best we can do. You got to do something with it. So all, all Nicodemus knew was this. Now think about this. He was a Pharisee. So let's think about how would the mind of a Pharisee be thinking about these kinds of matters? How would the mind of a Pharisee, right? How would the eyes of a Pharisee, the ears of a Pharisee, how would they see and hear this? Well, Pharisees of this day believe that all Jews would eventually enter the kingdom of God through the resurrection on the last day. The only exceptions would have been those who denied the faith or committed acts of what they called apostasy. And based on their way of thinking, based on his way of thinking, to be Jewish was to be born as an inheritor of the kingdom. Hey, we're born amongst the people of God, right? We're born amongst the people that God has chosen, that God has protected, that God has preserved. And so by virtue of being born into this, I will automatically inherit this. That's what the thought process was of anyone who was a leader within the Jewish, this Jewish community. And so based on their way of thinking, uh, being automatically an inheritor of the kingdom, this had to astound Nicodemus. That not only would he say, Jesus, I mean, ultimately Jesus is saying, your eyes have told you being born here means you get the right to be here. 
That's, your eyes have told you that. Your mama probably told you that. Your daddy probably told you that. The other books you've been reading have told you this. Your eyes and your ears and your heart and your mind, they're telling you that by being born here, you now deserve this. And Jesus is saying, not so. He's saying that forget where you were born. Forget who your parents are. If you are not born from God, this isn't yours. This is astounding. This is paradigm shifting. All Nicodemus knew was an earthly birth. He missed Jesus' reference, right, from that birth from above part. He missed that. He thought it meant second physical birth. And so Jesus, look at what he does. He reiterates the original statement to clear up Nicodemus' confusion, which I love, right? I love the fact that many times there are things that we're confused about, and we just need to go back to what God's already said. So he does. He said, let me repeat myself. And he clarifies a little bit more. He says this, and this, this can be hard to get if we really don't dig in. He says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatsoever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatsoever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it, where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, first he uses this phrase, like you must be born of water and spirit. A bunch of theories as to what that actually means, no one really knows because it was a phrase that was used then that we don't use now. There are four primary uh, viewpoints uh, that, that lay this out. I'll say it for you quickly. Baptiz the first view is uh, baptism in water by John the Baptist, right? A baptism of repentance and uh, spiritual regeneration by Jesus, right? That's one view. Maybe the other view is... Christian water baptism. You've, you've been, you're being baptized in Jesus now. Not just the repentance of John, but Jesus. I'm, that's something that hopefully all of us will do as believers, being actually baptized and spiritual regeneration. Third view is this was probably referring to natural birth because oftentimes water is used as a metaphor for natural childbirth. So it's possible that maybe Jesus is saying, unless you are both physically born and spiritually born, you will not see the kingdom. Very possible. And finally, some people may, may think that it's uh, both pictures, water and spirit, are both spiritual regeneration metaphors. Really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you need to be born again. Period. However you want to slice it, you want to get super metaphysical, that's cool. You need to be born again. That's what Jesus is getting across. So, so he reiterates his point by saying, I know you keep thinking, because you're, you're thinking uh, natural birth, and that, which is why I kind of think he's speaking more natural birth, but it doesn't matter. He's saying, Nicodemus, the example you're throwing back at me, this idea of being born, reborn from your mother's womb, unless you're born of water and a spirit, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's best to understand any of these cases as this idea of being born from above. And then Jesus starts to get deeper. He goes in verse 6 and he says... Like we said, whatever is born of flesh is a flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is a spirit. He's making this point hard. He's saying, what I'm saying is that your origin, your birth origin, that's what's dictating how you see things. That's what's making you think what you think. And, and, and you're held hostage by your own flesh because it can only see what it can see, and it can't see what it can't see. So 
So when he starts to bring this to him, I hope that you see this similarity, right? This should sound similar because when we went through John chapter one and we looked at the first few verses and we looked at how that's the prologue for his gospel. Remember what he says, John chapter one and verse 13. Remember this language? Because this is something John keeps wanting to get across to us. This idea that Jesus is God. This idea that Jesus came to remake us. This idea that Jesus came to actually give us new birth. Look at what he says in verse 13, verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. There's a consistent theme here. It's not enough to just be born. It's not enough to just be born into some godly loving families. I've got to be born of God. I cannot get in the kingdom resting on the laurels of some godly parents or a godly grandparent or a godly disciple, or whatever phrase, whatever person I've met that's had a spiritual impact on my life, they won't get me there. I've got to actually, there's something, some kind of a change that has to happen on my behalf. And that's why Jesus had to be looking at Nicodemus and seeing his face, and he probably started making the dumb face. Like, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. This is getting weird. And Jesus says, don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. Don't act brand new. You should know this. This is what he ultimately tells him. You should know this. Don't be amazed. It's, it's interesting. You may not understand exactly how the Spirit does the work of granting you a new birth from above, but you don't exactly understand how wind works either. You're basically saying, if you're basing, and this is important, if you're basing your faith totally off of what you can understand, you're taking for granted all the things you accept that you can't understand. That's what he said. Now, this used to, he starts bringing up an example of the wind, and the wind goes where it goes, and you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going. Now, the analytical side of me had a hard time with this. As y'all know, I was a weather forecaster in the Air Force. So I'm like, but we do know where the wind comes from, like all that, right? It's hard for me, right? Because then people will do that. They'll go, well, see, this is why I can't trust that because, but here's the thing. Jesus meets you where you are in whatever state of ignorance you are, and he speaks to you there. So, so don't sit and look at somebody else's point of ignorance and go, I'm not that ignorant, that's not for me. Jesus meets you where you are. So the nerd of me just wants to tell you that uh, air typically moves from areas of high pressure to low pressure. And so you can always know which direction it's going to go, okay? Look it up. <laughs> so Nicodemus, he just can't understand how this is possible. He, he's, he's still kind of just flustered. He's like, I don't get it. I don't understand how this is even a, a thing. And Jesus then says to him, not only does, it say, does he say, okay, the fact that you can't understand this shouldn't be enough for you not to at least begin to engage it. But then he says, basically, you ought to know better. Why? You're, you're a leader of the Jews. You're a Pharisee. You're a member of the, the highest court of all the land. You're a part of the supreme court in all of Jerusalem. You are amongst the most well-read, well-educated. You've been well-churched. You ought to know. You got all the right theology. You got all the right words, King James words. You got all the right ways of thinking. You, you've, you've lived your life in a certain kind of a way. Like, you should know better. Now, how can he say that, right? He ultimately is saying, how are you going to teach the Bible when you don't know your Bible? 
How are, you, how are you a person that communicates the truths of God, and yet you're demonstrating that you forget or overlook all these truths of God? What truths am I talking about? Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 59, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel 2, 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And even Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Y'all, it's one thing to say that you memorize scripture. It's another thing to live that thing out. It's another thing to actually believe it. It is not proof that you know God just because you know scripture. It's not proof that you know God just because you can quote it. It's not even proof that you understand the scriptures you're quoting by quoting them. You see that a lot. People just start quoting scriptures. I'm like, I, I don't think that means what you think it means. And so Jesus is looking at this man and he's going, how in the world are you this? You're looking to me and you're shocked, but I'm not saying anything new. This is the other thing that's so interesting, right? And we do this. We've talked about this before. Sometimes it's like I, I, I'm just waiting for something else for God to reveal to me. Listen, as I talk to all of us, talk to y'all, we sit and we talk and we try to figure things out throughout life. Sometimes we get to a place where we're like, I just don't know. I'm just waiting for God to just make it clear to me. And God has been like, I've been talking for thousands of years. And I've spoken to these issues for thousands of years. The issue isn't that you don't hear him speaking. The issue is I'm ignoring him speaking. I just, that is not for me. I don't want to accept that because it's not the kind of answer I want. It's just not. That's not what I was looking for. I was looking to be affirmed more on this one, but this isn't affirming me. I was looking for something to actually maybe justify what I was already thinking, but that, that actually counters it. It's, it's something to be said about whether or not we have a deep reverence for what God has already said versus we just have a tolerance for what he said. If you're just tolerating it, you're like, I'm going to tolerate it for now. There's always a lifespan on things you tolerate, right? Most things can hit a point where you're like, I'm done tolerating it. But when there's a deep reverence, there should never be an expiration date on reverence. There should never be an expiration date on how we revere God's word and hold it highly. But when it doesn't fit with the way your eyes are seeing, if it doesn't fit the way you already feel, if it doesn't fit what you already think, then you will dismiss it. And this is what had happened. So Jesus is saying, if you only read and remember what I've been telling you, what God has been telling you, you would have remembered them and you would have accepted what I'm doing and saying now. This is why we, we don't always need a new revelation. We just need to believe and walk in what God has already revealed about himself to us. And then you look at verses 11 through 13 and you see what Jesus starts to say. After making that point, he builds this case 
pretty well. And then he gets to verse 11. He says, truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you don't accept our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying something pretty interesting. He's like, okay, I've just shared with you, right, and on, a, on a major level, something that's earthly. This need to be born again, guess where that happens? Here on earth. I just told you something you have to do in your earthly body, something that you need to be pursuing here on earth, and this is a condition in order to get into the heavenly kingdom. So if you don't get this, how will you actually then understand the kingdom? And here's how he validates and he authenticates himself. He says, if you're going to accept something new, you at least want to accept it from somebody who has seen it or experienced it, right? We just watched, um, we just watched the, the movie about Harriet Tubman, and it was really interesting looking at how they were kind of depicting some of the people when, when they would come back, and they were almost shocked to see Harriet Tubman come back to the place that she was from and be amazed that she was there, and it made people go, I want to go too then. If she's back from there, that means she got out. And if she got out, she knows the way out. We're going to listen and trust what she has to say. Jesus is really saying, I mean, identically the same thing. He's going, you, didn't even, you don't even want to believe what I've told you about something earthly here. How in the world are you going to understand this heavenly thing I'm telling you about? I'm the only one you can listen to on that because I'm the only one from there. So what are you going to do? You're going to keep trusting your writings? Trusting the, the dreams and visions you're having? You're going to keep trusting your fears and the ways that you try to protect power and privilege and class? You're going to keep trusting that? Because that's not going to get you there. The only one who can get you there is the one who came from there. So he says, I'm the only one that's descended from there, and I'm the only one you have hope in of getting you there. And then he alludes to this famous passage, this famous story back in the scriptures you see in uh, verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's interesting, right? Because he basically is going back to Numbers 21, time frame where the children of Israel were in the, were in the wilderness. They were complaining, they were griping, like we all are prone to do. You start doing, so again, you, you, you're tolerating God's goodness for, goodness for now as long as it doesn't last too long, and the, as long or as long as this weight doesn't go too far. And then as soon as it gets too far, you're like, no, I'm this, I didn't sign up for this. That's what they did. So they start griping. They start complaining. And finally, they start turning against Moses and turning against God. So what did the Lord do? He sent venomous snakes down. Now, that's wild. That's a, that's a crazy story in and of itself, right? Because, because it's like, yes, during that time, and there's specific things. God is leading his people out of captivity, both physically and spiritually. And he's spending time, and these folks are like, we love you, we love you, we love you, until we don't anymore. And they don't. And he sends judgment down. Listen, y'all, we don't stay here long because it's been used to abuse in a lot of ways. But please don't create a God for yourself that's a God that's free from wrath. Be very careful. Yes, it has been used to do some horrible things. That view of wrath has been used to scare people, manipulate people into stuff, into false conversion, all of that. 
But that does not mean we cast this part, this part of who God is. God is wrathful, and he is angry at sin, and he's angry at rebellion, and we're supposed to take that seriously. And so you've got these folks who have turned against, and he, and he cast down these venomous snakes. And, they, and, and, you know, snakes bite, so started biting people. They started dying. And the people who survived recognized, I know why this is happening. See, this is what real repentance looks like, right? You don't just go, why are these bad things happening to me? You're like, man, I'm seeing how I brought some of this on. I see the things that I've done to turn away from God, and I know what it is to have to turn back. So they went to Moses, and they started confessing their sin. They didn't just go tell God to stop. They started with confessing their sin. See, this is what real contrite hearts look like, is that when, when you know, the person who's not repentant, they're only mad because the consequences are happening and they will do whatever they have to do to stop said consequences from happening. But the person who is genuinely contrite goes, I want these consequences to stop, but I realize that it's rooted in my own sin and rebellion, and so I've got to do work with my own stuff first. So they go to Moses, and they confess their sin. And then after confessing their sin, they beg him to intercede for them. And Moses prayed, and God told him, I'll take care of them. Here's how we're going to do it. Take a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who looks at that pole, lift it up. They can look at it and live. If they just look at it, they will live. And then Jesus refers to that because he's saying the same way that Moses lifted up the snake, Jesus has to be lifted up. When you look at John, five times in John's gospel, he uses this word lift. He uses the same word lift, and every single time, it's referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is saying something huge here. He's saying, the stuff that you kept trusting in to get you into the kingdom, they won't do it. And in the same way that your people thousands of years ago had to trust in God for deliverance, you've got to trust in me for deliverance. And you look at, this is where you get to the most famous verse in all of the Bible. The most famous, most quoted verse in all of the Bible. You realize that if you don't understand it, a lot of times people would just preach a sermon just on that alone. It's dangerous if you don't look at it in the context of this larger point. If you, if you divorce John 3.16 from this discourse with Nicodemus, you're missing it. That's what he says. After bringing up Moses, after saying there is no other possibility of seeing the kingdom and getting into the kingdom outside of me delivering you into the kingdom, then he says... For God loved the world in this way. And I love that it's worded this way, right? Because we'll talk about the, the, the way we've always said it. For God so loved the world. He says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Then he goes on. But this is, this is interesting. It's the most popular scripture, most famous scripture. We write it on our gym shoes. We write it on our boxing gloves. We write it on, on our, in our Facebook profiles and statuses, and we use it ad nauseum. And, and many times we use it completely out of context. Because when Jesus gets here, we have to understand, when, he, when you look at the way we've always memorized it, me, myself as well, forgot so loved the world. You know what we do with that word so? We think that that word so there is to convey the degree to which God loved you. Now, there's no question that the scriptures definitely show us how much God loves us, but that's not what the author was intending here. 
See, we think that this idea of like, so, so basically we can create this emotional charge. Do you know how much he loved you? He loved you so much to do this. He did. There's no question about that. But there's something else we're missing here. Because when you look at this word so, it can give us the wrong idea. It's usually, again, interpreted to convey this degree, how much he loved the world. But the Greek word for so here, it's actually never used to describe the degree to which a thing occurs. It's always used to describe the manner in which a thing occurs. The manner in which a thing occurs. Why is he having to describe the manner? Because your old eyes had other ways, other manners of getting there. The way you typically are wired, if you're born of this earth, you are wired to think, I'll get there this way. God will love me if I, if I do it this way. God will understand my heart if I do it this way. He'll know what I was getting at, even if I don't get that. He knows what I was getting at. Yeah, he did say this over here, but he gets my heart. I'm going to do it this way anyway, and he'll understand. Because that's the manner in which I believe salvation occurs. So Jesus is saying, listen, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Member of the Sanhedrin, Mr. Major, Major Jewish leader, the, the manners in which you think you get there, that's not. God loved you so much that he did it in this way. He did it by dying for you. He did it by giving himself for you. Yes, it's definitely an expression of, of, to some degree, the extent of how much he loves you. But it's more focused on the expression of how he loves you. And so when you get to this, if you, if you just end here, the reason why it's dangerous when people just end at this passage, here's what you can start to feel. All right, he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. True. He loves me. And he does, and he died for me, and he did that. And all these incredible things about the way he loves me can be so incredible, but if I end here, I miss a crucial point. I'll just think that God sent Jesus because of how much he loves me. And while his act of saving is completely passive, and it is, the way that Jesus saved me is passive. I did nothing for him to save me. That part is true. But if you just stop there, then you miss a, a, another crucial part of your walk. Because your salvation is completely passive on your part, but the role of demonstrating what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to is never passive on our part. You understand that? For a lot of people, because grace has been just kind of uh, explained away in the way that some people have called cheap grace, it's this idea of like, there's nothing else to do, just be saved. And that's true. There's nothing you do to save yourself. However, what Jesus is saying is, if you are born again, then you begin to behave like someone who's born elsewhere. You begin to see like someone who was born elsewhere. You begin to think and feel like someone who was born elsewhere. This is why he has to tie this. If you separate John 3.16 from the idea of being newly born... You're going to miss the role that we're supposed to play. Now, please don't mis mishear me here. Don't misunderstand and think that the goal then is, <clears throat> I'm going to make sure that I do really good things and make sure that I think the right way so that I get accepted into the kingdom. That's not what this is at all. You don't do and, and be righteous in order to get in the kingdom. You live righteously because you've been accepted into the kingdom. It's a big difference. So the pressure isn't just, I got to do this to make sure that I get in. And this is why when he goes to, uh, when you, if you don't read the rest of this, this is where we lose it, right? Because after he says, you know, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Then he goes, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. What is he saying here? He's not saying, hey, listen, bad on you. You didn't do this, and now he's coming to get you. Ultimately, what he's saying is you are still held hostage by your birth. You're still held hostage by the way that you've always thought. You're still held hostage by the way you've always felt and the way you've always behaved and the, the whatever incredible structures, even good things that you've placed in, uh, uh, that you've used as like the boundaries in your life and the ways to be a good person. All of that is great, but you're still held back in that. Your vision is still skewed in that. And so something then still needs to change. And when he goes and he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Hey, y'all, that's not, that's not foreign. Listen, when you, when we are thinking or loving something or doing something that is counter to who God is and something comes in to expose it, we don't start going, yes, finally. We don't start with like, I just love being exposed. I love the fact that I am now found out as this horrible sinner in this area. Or I love the fact that this one part of the way I view a thing is off. We don't do that. You know what we do? We go out of our way to just make you, well, no, no, it's not that bad, I promise. I, the, the way I've been looking at this, I know it's a little bit off, but I, let me show you all the ways that it's still better than you think it is. But that's, that's not what we're called to do. Ultimately, we get to a place where we're like, you know what, I am, if, if I've been born again, then when things in me are exposed, I have to embrace that. It's not going to be hard, really difficult. We embrace it. We don't run from it. But what does he say? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness. This is, you realize every single one of us in this room were born loving darkness. That's what the scripture tells us. Every one of us, on some level, there's an aspect of darkness that we hold to or love, whether it's the way we think, what we do, what we want, what we love, what we pursue, something. There's some area, and as long as we are breathing, that is constantly being rooted out. And so when he's, Jesus is making this point, he's saying, yes, I, I came to die and I came to love you, but if you don't understand that Jesus came to give you a new birth, to give you real transformation. We say this all the time. You can't just want salvation and then eschew transformation. You can't just want to be saved and never want to be changed. How do you know when people don't want to be changed? Because the moment you begin to challenge things that ought to change, they fight back. That's not the Jesus I want to follow. A new birth brings a newness of life, a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing. And here's the thing. Yes, we're still the same people. We still have the same personalities. We still have the th same things that we like. We still have the same language patterns and regional diction. Some of us will still say caramel and some of us will still say caramel. Which one is it, y'all? See, we can't even agree on nothing. All those things may still be the same, but there's something else that begins to change. The way in which we live should change. And we don't change, like I said, in order to be accepted into the kingdom. We change because we've been accepted. We change and we change uh, uh, how we live because we have been adopted by the virtue of a new birth certificate. 
We have a new origin of birth that now dictates how we think and how we live because we've been accepted. So this, where, this is where this moment comes that all of us have. And I'm going to say this. This is a moment we have to arrive at regularly. Sometimes I, I think that many times those of us who were raised in churches that kind of always pointed you to a decision. Some of us grew up in like decision kind of salvation churches. All right, who wants to come down right now and make this decision? I'm not saying that's bad. The Bible never calls you to do that, but I'm not necessarily saying that that's bad. Here's the danger, though. If you treat this new birth like a momentary decision, you won't realize that it's ongoing. You won't realize that it's a constant life of transformation. And so when there is no transformation, you'll trust in that one moment of a decision and be like, no, I can't be wrong. Why? Because I had this moment. And I had this moment of emotional ecstasy. I had this moment where I felt close to God. So, so I can't be as far away as possible because I did this thing at church 17 years ago. Being transformed is not about a decision. It's about a lifetime of transformation. It's about a de- constant decision today, decision tonight, decision tomorrow, decision tomorrow, decision next month, decision next year, decision at 40, decision at 80. It's a series of decisions until sanctification has thoroughly been perfected in us. So what does transformation look like? We either seek our source of goodness, grace, and security from him, or we seek it elsewhere. And as we leave the sanctuary, as we leave church, we will be offered countless other options, status, power, possessions, and more. And that similarly promises us life and require our allegiance in return. And so ultimately, what John is showing us here and what Jesus is showing us, that following Jesus is not as much of a decision as it is an actual reaction. How do I react? What do we say this all the time? The the journey into Jesus is this. Who is he and what do I do with his claims? Who is he and what do I do with his claims? So every single day you have to ask yourself this question. You wake up to, who is Jesus? What do I do with his claims? I'm in situations, I'm having conversations with people. Something comes up, who is Jesus and what do I do with his claims with this one? I have to look at situations in society, in the world. Who is Jesus and what, is, and what do I do with his claims here? I look at injustices. Who is Jesus? What do, I look at personal sin issues. Who is Jesus? What do I do? This is what you should be asking in every aspect of your life because that's what it means to be born from above and not born just here. So, of course, yeah, it's not as much of a decision as it is a reaction. It's interesting how Jesus' presence, whenever he shows up, it always reveals the character of those he encounters more than it ever just poses a question. Anytime Jesus comes near to you, who you really are should start to be displayed good or bad or ugly or whatever, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you start seeing, maybe even just how far away you are from him. But then Jesus kind of makes this point, I come after people who are far from me. So, so there is no judgment or condemnation. You know what his judgment is to you? For God so loved the world. I loved you so very much. And I loved you enough to save you, and the manner in which I've saved you is this, that I've lived and that I've died in your place. I've paid the ultimate price. Now, before I close, quick question. So whatever happened to Nicodemus? Because, I mean, he's only mentioned here, and you wonder, like, man, all, this guy gets brought up, this, this incredible exchange begins to happen, 
Whatever happened to him? Well, I told you, I believe he was a believer. And I believe we see that because if you look at John 7, verses 50 through 52, you see a very interesting story that, hit, that hits here. Remember, there's a big debate happening within the Sanhedrin about Jesus' claims. It's the only, this is so cool because it's only here. I feel like this is like national treasure. Like this is a really cool spot that we're going to go. You get to this spot where you start seeing everybody's arguing about who Jesus is. They're arguing about Jesus' claims. They're like, okay, this guy, this Jesus guy, this Jewish kid that we've been seeing, he's saying a lot of stuff. He's causing a lot of problems. What are we going to do? Highest Jewish court in all the land. They're arguing. Matter of fact, I started at 45. Then the servants came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? And the servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. So real quick, all these folks are coming to these Jewish leaders going, no, we saw some stuff, and we don't really know what to do with it, but we saw some things that really can't be explained. We're Jews too, and we know like what the law says, and we know what y'all tell us the law says, more so than what the law says. We know what you guys are telling us to believe about this, but we're seeing things different. He's speaking with an authority, and he's doing things that you told us only God can do. And they respond, they actually respond with like some real elitism. Y'all not educated enough. No leader said this. Any Jewish leader said this? No, y'all are just a bunch of uneducated hacks talking about Jesus. Ain't nobody, listen, they're like, we're here. All of our leaders are here. You don't hear any of us talking like that, do you? None of us are verifying those claims, uh, are we? Except for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? He's wanting to, he wants them to say, hey, he's basically saying, why don't you just evaluate what he says? Because Nicodemus knows what's going to happen. He's already been transformed. He's already been changed. He's already done the work of who is Jesus. What do I do with his claims? He's still doing that work. So he's like, well, let me, let me invite y'all to, to, to weigh his claims. Y'all, that's what actually a good friend should do. That's what a good neighbor should do. I want to love you. I want to care for you. And also, yeah, this is something I really believe in. Who is Jesus and what do I do with his claims? No need to make a decision or anything right now. How about, I know there are a few people here that are spending time going, hey, can we just, let's just go through the scriptures together and just weigh out some of the claims of Jesus. Just an intellectual pursuit, if you will, of I just want to know what these claims are and figure out what to do with them. So he does that. It's funny because they do, we'll, we'll talk about this when we preach on this, but they do kind of what we're prone to do. The ad hominem argument. Oh, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They start turning on their own. Because they were like, I I don't want to have to weigh the claims of Jesus. I'd rather just weigh who you are to me rather than weigh who Jesus is to me. So you've got Nicodemus here already pointing out and already starting to to, to validate some of Jesus' claims, at least speaking up on his behalf, right? Now, we see him one other time. We see him one other time. We see him in John 19. Jesus has been killed. And his body is being prepared for burial. And there are two people that show up on the scene to prepare his body. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. If you don't believe that Nicodemus did not ask that question to himself, who is Jesus? And now he's asking, who was Jesus? And what do I do with his claim? He said, I'm going to go wrap the body of my Savior. Because this is what transformation looks like. 
Now, we don't know everything that happened to him. There's some interesting extra-biblical writings. There's this, uh, a, a passage or, or a book called The Gospel of Nicodemus, and there's a lot of questions about what to do with that, not necessarily part of canon and scripture, yet there are things in it that are absolutely true historically, right? So people maybe treat it more like history than scripture, but there are things within it that are completely accurate that line up with the things we know are true, right? Talks about who Pilate, it, it spends a lot of time talking about what Pilate was doing during the trial. But yet it mentions Nicodemus, and it talks about how Nicodemus was stripped of all of his authority, stripped of all of his power, stripped of all of his status, and ostracized from the community, which makes sense why then the first three gospel authors likely would have left him out to protect his identity. And John includes him, and he shows him there with the body of our Lord. Y'all, if you don't get anything else, the message of Jesus and the call of Jesus is urgent, and it's clear. And sometimes we respond earnestly and quickly. Sometimes we respond right away. And other times, it might take us much longer to respond. But here's the big thing. Jesus is very different from us in a lot of ways. The one way that Jesus is completely different is that he never cancels us. Like we are prone to cancel, right? There are things that you're saying right now that are legitimately wrong or false, and I will now cancel what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not going to cancel what you're saying. I'm going to cancel you right now because you're not where you ought to be at this point in time. Jesus doesn't do that. Now, this doesn't say you don't call out the things. There are things that you think that need to be canceled. There are things that you might be saying that needs to be canceled. But Jesus is always, here's where you are right now. I'm loving you because I know where you're going to be. So there's a patience with which I will deal with you. There's a patience that I will show to you. And so Nicodemus, all this time, Nicodemus probably didn't get it. Remember, this is year one of Jesus's ministry. It's, the, it's not until year three that Jesus dies. What's happened to Nicodemus for those three years? A lot of change, a lot of transformation. It's not up to us to determine whether somebody is done transforming. That's what pride looks like. So even if you're right in your viewpoint on a thing, you have no right to cancel anyone. You just don't. I don't. We have to make responsible decisions. We have to figure out, hey, I can cancel the voice of this impact in my life right now. I, can, I don't have to actually be in toxic places. I don't have to deal with certain things. However, I never have to cancel people. I can always go, Lord, I really hope that truth here prevails. I really hope, which means that if there's ever a time when someone wants to engage with the truth of who Jesus is or other things, then I will continue. I'm here. I'm present. Why? Because Jesus is always here and Jesus is always present. So if I'm frustrated by uh, certain acts, if I'm completely uh, uh, mortified by things I know that grieves God's heart, I'm angry. Maybe you're angry about the toxicity that is rife within patriarchy. Then I speak out against it, but I don't cancel everybody. I stay present and go, this is still wrong. I don't mute myself and I don't stop calling out what's wrong, but I stay present. And the only way I do that is not because of my own will or because of my want to, because I don't want to. It's because I've been transformed. It's because I'm not seeing you the way I was prone to see you. I'm not feeling the way I was prone to feel. I'm not hearing you the way I was prone to hear you. If I'm frustrated with, with any other thing, I have to find this fine line, and it's hard, y'all. This is something we have to do in community, something I'm having to do work on even to myself. 
But if Jesus doesn't go, listen, you're not at the pace of transformation that I needed you to be, so I'm done with you. If he doesn't do it, then who do you think you are to, do, to not do the same? It's convicting and it's hard, but this is the work of being transformed. This is the work of what it means for hearts and minds to be reshaped into the image of Jesus. So his call is urgent. His call is clear. We may not respond quickly. We may respond quickly, but either way, we respond guided by the Holy Spirit that brings us new birth and new life. Why? Because God so loves the world, including us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God that gives birth, that you are a God that not only saves us, but you change us. You, you truly do the work of remaking us. So you meet us exactly where we are. You meet us exactly in the way that we think, in the way that we see, in the way that we hear, and the way that we feel. You meet us there. And you didn't come to condemn us there. You came to call us to yourself and to change us, to look like you. And we thank you, God. God, we know that we are incapable of changing ourselves. Yes, God, we can, we can do things to change our speech patterns. We can do things to even temporarily change our behaviors. We can create new habits. But God, we cannot give ourselves new hearts. God, I pray that you would give us a heart that truly seeks out genuine transformation day by day. God, we realize that this is the only way that whether we are right or whether we're wrong, we don't care about which side we're on. We want to be on your side. We want to be with you. We want to be changed in you. So God, thank you for promising to do that. Thank you for coming, not only to live, not only to give us great examples, but you came to die. You communicated a very vital message to us. We need change. We need to be transformed. We need new life. We need new birth. So God, the God that births, God, will you birth us again? Give us new life. Give us new birth. Give us new eyes. Give us new hearts. Father, I pray now that if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice that truly does not know what real new birth is, whether uh, they maybe have never considered this before, or Lord, maybe there are people here that, have, that know you and still have not considered areas in their lives, areas in their hearts where birth needs to really happen. God, we are all on a journey of constantly and continually being reborn. So God, will you work that up in us? Will you start to, to needle and give us some real discomfort in areas where new birth is necessary? God, I pray that none of us here would trust in the eyes that we have. I pray that none of us here would trust in the paradigms we have created for ourselves. God, tear down the, the, the walls and the ways in which we think. Tear down the temples we've erected for ourselves and change us. Do what you promised to do in your death and your resurrection. It's in the power and the authority of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.